This is part three of the Palestine collection, um, but this conversation is going to widen the lens a little bit from Palestine-Israel, though we continually step back into it. It's a conversation about that quiet, uncomfortable question that I think many of us must be thinking from time to time and being afraid to ask out loud, and that question is, does terrorism work? And Richard English is my conversation partner for that fascinating investigation. I think most people have heard the phrase, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I'll bring that up in the conversation with Professor English, of course, but it really does point to just how powerful language is. This word terrorism has been doing so much work to frame certain kinds of violence as completely out of bounds in such a way as to not be required to consider it as anything more than the work of pure evildoers. We know this can't really be true, right? At least not entirely. But it's such a dangerous thought to let creep into our heads that we just quickly snuff it out. So Hamas engages in terrorism, but the IDF engages in military operations. And the Irgun and the Stern Gang were engaged in terrorism, but then it gets called Hebrew Rebellion after they appear to achieve at least some of their primary goals, at least by 1967. The Native Americans were savages and brutes who were scalping pioneers in acts of terrorism, but now we have revised their actions and maybe we call it something else in light of different moral attitudes. You get the point here. And this is what this conversation with Richard English is going to explore. I'll read just one thing quickly here first, because Richard English doesn't really want to get caught up in definitions of terrorism, since it seems everyone kind of has their own. So he encourages students of this subject to simply pick a definition, announce it, and stick to it. So just so you can track the way he's using the term in our conversation, I want to read his 92-word definition of terrorism. So, terrorism involves heterogeneous violence used or threatened with a political aim. It can involve a variety of acts, of targets, and of actors. It possesses an important psychological dimension, producing terror or fear among a directly threatened group and also a wider implied audience in the hope of maximizing political communication and achievement. It embodies the exerting and implementing of power, and the attempted redressing of power relations. It represents a subspecies of warfare, and as such, it can form part of a wider campaign of violent and nonviolent attempts at political leverage. Okay, so let's jump into this conversation with Professor Richard English, which I think is crucially important. It's a bit on the longer side, but I think it's absolutely worth the time. So resistance or terror with Richard English. This question that you pose um, is one that I got a ton of, like in private responses of people who knew that I maybe felt a little differently from the Sam Harris's of the world or the, these other people who were who were scratching the surface, and everyone's afraid to ask that question. Uh, I'll, actually, I'll start off because <laughs> I don't know if your publisher knew this, but naming a book does terrorism work makes it very difficult to buy it in a, in a hardback copy and carry it around in a subway <laughs> but but in the kindle it, it's safe but but the question itself is just it's like in the back of everyone's head i think under all of these things and you've had the the um courage academically for over a decade now to to go full 
into that question. So my first question before we get into sort of your definition, and then we'll get into the specifics of case studies, is how did you personally sort of get into the question from an academic and, and intellectual pursuit? I first became interested in terrorism through the I. I was an undergraduate at Oxford. I was interested in the way in which nationalism and political violence intersected. And because I'd been born in Belfast, though I grew up in England, I started working on Ireland, wrote a book on the IRA. Around the time the IRA was stopping their campaign, the 9-11 atrocity happened. And so everybody globally was interested in questions around terrorism in a different way. Why did it happen? Why does it come to an end? And so forth. But one of the really painful questions seemed to me, whether it was in the IRA case or in other cases around the world, was having an honest discussion about what the effects of this kind of violence actually are. And it's a painful thing, because if you seem to say it works, that's obviously very depressing for people, but also clearly for victims and those who've suffered at the hands of terrorists, it seems to compound what's happened. On the other hand, if you say it just doesn't work, you have the problem as a scholar, as no citizen observing this, well, why does it keep happening all the time around the world year after year after year if it simply does not work? So I felt what was needed was a kind of calm argument around the efficacy or inefficacy of terrorism, which didn't start out thinking I know the answer or I'll go for the answer I want, and which didn't look for a simple yes or no, but looked mm. for a layered definition of what it might mean and trying to understand it in ways that were perhaps sometimes uncomfortable, but at least getting under the skin of the deeper complexities of this phenomenon, which terrible and bloodstained though it is, has helped to shape a lot of what's happened in the world globally. So it was really through questions around an Irish case study, then the globalization of interest in it, but then trying to be honest about it. If you're thinking about illnesses, I don't want a doctor to thump the table and condemn a disease that I have. Mm -hmm. I want them to tell me about what they know about it, why I might have contracted it, and what they can and can't do about it. I want people to be calm. And I think it, it, as a professor, I was trying to think, as a writer, I was trying to think, there's no point just condemning awful violence. Of course, the suffering is terrible. But what I want to do is to have some kind of explanation. And the does terrorism work question didn't seem to me to have been answered properly. And for all of the flaws in my own approach, I tried to answer it as honestly as I could. Yeah. How much, just before we get into the specifics of, of all of it, how much through your research has it um, maybe altered your uh, worldview or your narrative of just the human civilization project as a species of just how, um, I don't know, it, woven through our stories, things like terrorism. And again, I'll give your definition in the open, but and we'll hone in on it. But um, kind of outrageous violence really is like a, is like an undercurrent that we just kind of don't want to look at. It's a really sharp point. And I think it's one of the things which I found very depressing about mm -hmm. studying this for years is that not only is violence pervasive, no side in conflicts comes out cleanly. And what tends often to happen with terrorism is the usefulness of the word to many actors is that you use the word to condemn the people that are against you, but you right. turn a blind eye to the ghastliness of the violence that you bless or that you've practiced or that you've inherited benefits from. And so it seems to me, for example, I was born in Ireland, the British Empire involved an enormous amount of violence practiced on people who didn't deserve it, um, and also witnessed a fair amount of violence, latter-day violence, against it to try and free people from it. Now, you can just pick one side in that argument and say they're the bad guys, but it seems to me a proper analysis of this is to say 
if we're, if we're looking at minimizing human suffering, let's say, why does this violence occur? What does it achieve? And how can we try and mitigate the likelihood of it occurring in the future? And that's where, where I am. But it's depressing because, you're, first of all, you're studying the most bleak and ghastly things. Mm. Some of what you're reading about is appalling and nightmarish. But also you're looking at things where you find that people are very comfortable about approving or acquiescing or not mentioning the violence that's comfortable for their side. Yeah. And I think that often that is something which then makes you review, revisit some of the narratives which, for example, most Western liberal democracies have, which can be quite comfortable because you forget about the people on the other side of conflicts, which sometimes your states have been involved in. So it's not always popular, Jay. It's not yeah. always popular because you raise questions which people would rather sometimes that you didn't raise. And I think that people are very happy if you talk about terrorism as being something which other people do against your society and which is ghastly, and if you pathologize it, and clearly the violence is appalling. But it's, when you try and explain things, people say, well, does that mean that this was wrong on our mm -hmm. side? And does that to think again about that? Often I think it does. And that's not a comfortable conversation. I personally believe it's a necessary conversation, but I don't think it's a comfortable one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the cliche, I'm sure you get it a lot, and I've heard it of the one man's terrorist as another man's freedom fighter is just sort of uh, the encapsulation of a lot of this. I don't, you know, I, I live in Spain now and I don't know my listeners, I'm sure all over, all over the, the world and in different places, you know, walking down the street, just seeing names of, of street signs and statues and stuff. I think it's this uncomfortable thought that it's like, well, you know, did this guy just, just happened to be on the winning side and now he gets a statue and it gets called, you know, a, a liberator and a freedom fighter or a resistor. Is there really that big of a, of a moral gap between this person and some boogeyman name that we hear in the news right now that we hate, you know, I, it's sort of just, a, it's a, maybe an emotional connect to what you just said, but, you know, I don't know if that, if you have a, a response to that, or if you've started, you know, gone into that world. I do, because I think what we commemorate and what we're not commemorating are really important about the kind of society that we have. And I think my own preference is that where things have been named, think about all the layers around that. So what are the things that the person did? Why did they do it in the context of their time? Are there things we shouldn't really be celebrating as we walk past a station named after someone or a street named after someone or a building named after someone? Are there people we haven't commemorated whom we should? Generally speaking, I think that it's hard to find important people politically who've been entirely clean. Yeah. And I think that there, while you choose to commemorate, you should have honesty about the layered nature of, of that. Yeah, I, I, I work in a university in Belfast, Queen's University of Belfast, initially founded in the mid-19th century, named after Queen Victoria, mm -hmm. who was, of course, a very important figure politically in the history of England, the United Kingdom, and so forth, and globally but presided over an empire which most observers now would think to have been a pernicious venture in terms yeah. of the receiving end victims of it. Should we rename the university? I don't think we should. Uh, should we be honest about the past? I think we should. And that doesn't just doesn't just mean casually dismissing everyone who's involved in empires because that's complex too. But it seems to me that some kind of layered understanding and some kind of contextualization of what we do remember and what we don't remember is important. On terrorism, it's very interesting those whom we commemorate in, um, in Israel outside King David Hotel, where there's a memorial to the people who died in that terrible terrorist mm. bombing. Uh, the number listed includes one of the attackers. Mm. Mm. Uh, because in the history of Israel, the attacker was someone who was fighting for freedom. Okay, 
Um, I, I, I think that that is a. Re- I'm not making a judgment on that. I'm just observing that that is something which you know would be unimaginable at the memorial for seven seven in London or nine eleven in New York City, for example, because of the nature of the. The identity of the person or persons who are involved as the attacker. So, how we look at it changes over time, changes with perspective. I suppose what I try and do in my own work is look at things from many, many different perspectives, get as many sources as you can, have them mutually interrogate each other, and try to find answers which the evidence leads you to as far as possible. None of us is utterly neutral or dispassionate, but I've tried as far as possible to come up with conclusions which seem to me sustainable, even if they're not particularly nice ones or welcome ones. And I found mm-hmm. that quite often they're not, but I think it's better to go where the evidence seems to suggest. Um, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to sort of tiptoe up to Israel, but you mentioned, and we're going to get to it, the Irgun and Stern Gang. I'm not sure. These are parts of, of you, you already brought up sort of national myths and the... Um, uh, tendency to want to minimize or erase some of the the, the bloody edges of national myths, and and we're gonna we're gonna get to Israel for sure. And I'm not sure how familiar people are with things like the Irgun and uh, the Haganah and the Stern Gang and the, this legacy of it. But before before we get into that thing, that's really led me to have this conversation with you. Um, let's let's go back to sort of your central question of does terrorism work, um, and you've hinted at it to sort of reject the simple stories of good and evil and whatever it is. Uh, can you talk a little bit, your book is laid out uh, just for the listeners who grab that book. The, the intro is really where you do the philosophizing and sort of the laying out the intellectual pursuit of how do you even begin to tackle this question? And then there's four case studies, including Hamas, Al Qaeda, the IRA and the Basque, uh, movement in Spain. Um, so I'm mostly talking about the first part here you go through the just uh, impossibility, perhaps, of really addressing this question. Um, can you lay out some of the complications of the criteria for this question? You got long-term goals, short-term goals. It's a, it's a whole myriad of things that terrorists are trying to achieve, I think. Yes. With any complex and really significant human endeavor, there's probably more than one simple motivation and more than one simple outcome. So what I try to do in my book is get a framework for looking at what working might mean. Mm. So I, I, I argue, well, there might be at the high level, if you like, what you'd call strategic success, where you have a particular goal, you pursue violence, and you achieve that goal. And that would seem to be the, the ultimate kind of terrorist working. But that's very rare. It's very rare in, in lots of human endeavor that you get the absolute headline goal of what you want in terms of business, in terms of personal careers, in terms of sport, and so forth, mm-hmm. so too in terrorism. But there's another layer, which is what I would call partial strategic success, which is mm-hmm. where you don't get the full thing, but you get a kind of partial version of it, a decaffeinated version of what you really want. And that's non-trivial. You know, so you might want a fully independent state for your people, pursue it through violence. You get part of that territory partly free. Is that what you fully wanted? No. Is it trivial? No. And you might also get a secondary goal. So you might not destroy the enemy state, but you might get revenge against them. You might sustain resistance. So there'd be secondary goals. Then there's another layer, I think, which is what I'd call tactical successes. So you might not achieve either strategic or partial strategic success, but you might have operational successes. You might gain publicity for your cause. You might undermine your opponent. You might strengthen your organization. You might gain control over a population. Beyond that, there's also something which I don't think explains terrorism, but which might be part of the picture, which is what I call inherent rewards, that you might feel that personally or as a group, you move from 
humiliating deference to proud resistant defiance, you might get some exhilaration. You might have the catharsis of hitting back at people who are your enemies. You might gain power. You might gain fame. You might gain renown. There could be all sorts of things. The wonderful terrorism scholar Louise Richardson wrote a book, What Terrorists Want, in which one of the themes she brings up is renown, that there's mm. a sort of fame for it. And for some people, that's true. So the picture I paint is one which says, look, it, it's not enough to say they wanted this goal X and they didn't get it, so they failed. Um, or even to say, you know, they some of them had a good war and ended up being famous and so they succeeded. It has to be a mixture of those strategic, tactical and personal aspects to it. This doesn't solve the problem completely because it's hard to prove causation in complex human affairs. How do you know it was the terrorism that led to it rather than other things happening at the same time? But I think that framework at least allows us to be honest, because otherwise sometimes people talk past each other. People say they didn't get their headline goal, so they failed. Other people say they got publicity, so they succeeded. They might both be right. It's a different kind of working. What I'm trying to get is an honest discussion of it, as you would have about any other major historical or political phenomenon. So that's how I approached it in my book, Does Terrorism Work? Yeah, I, I love the um, the complications. There's a part where you talk about sort of collective goals versus individual goals, and sometimes those clash or mix. It's not a perfect emergent property that all the individual goals are the collective goals. And I'm fascinated by sort of the psychological um, barriers within individuals to maybe even know what they're after. I mean, this is just a human point about... And that's another, that's yeah, another huge problem, isn't it? Yeah. Because even if you have people who are reflecting very honestly about why they did what they did as with all of us memory is fallible mm -hmm. we always we always tend to write memoirs that make us look slightly more benign rather mm -hmm. than malign. uh we also have the knowledge you know, i'm 60 years old i have the knowledge now of what my 20 year old person was going to become so i i see things that weren't seen when i was 20 and so similarly if you're looking back at a career of political violence you know happened and you maybe reinterpret your motivation in terms of trying to make it seem like it was more in line with what you know later to have happened which it was an unforeseen future when you carried it out those are all pitfalls now it's also true that that's the sort of thing which is difficult to deal with in any kind of yeah. complex inquiry historically or politically so in that sense it's no different from other issues where it is different is that on terrorism absolutely no source is going to be neutral everybody mm -hmm. has a an angle uh, and that means you get very tendentious sources. You get a lot of opacity because people try and hide things. The nature of the violence and the organizations and the organizations that counter them has a secrecy built into it. So in that sense, it's different from studying you know, agriculture in 19th century England or something like that, where there's less of a sharp-edged controversy. What I've tried to do in my books is to approach them as, as analytically as you can. You'd never get rid of the emotion uh, entirely, but do it calmly so that we can get as full a picture as is possible and then i hope other people will pick up the debate and, and, and move forward in, in in other levels yeah yeah i was going to make the point about um i don't know if you use the word directly i mean re revenge renown these are all interesting and i think dignity is one that is that is so tricky <laughs> if you're trying to evaluate whether someone has achieved dignity and you know dignity is not a method dignity is an emotion it's a, like an emotional state of reaching someplace and you know i'm not i'm not sure how you would try to arrive at at that place this, this is let's just go into israel uh, palestine and, and hamas because i think that there's one point that I, i've been making lately i'm i'm curious your response to it just a, as a as a sort of thesis where 
um, again, as you say, multifaceted, I don't want to just distill this to one sort of thesis or, or issue here, but, you know, people criticize being like, well, Hamas and Palestine, they get all this money. And if they just, you know, used it to build cafes and libraries and playgrounds, they could have this society or whatever, but they use it for tunnels and and to, to, to do violence amongst other things. And, um, you know, this, this, this reveals that they're not interested in peace and they just want revenge. And there's just this violent thing. And, and, you know, I have this hunch that there's a psychological um, jewel to talk about in that of being like, well, you know, they could build all of the the cafes and playgrounds they want in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. But what that won't deliver is dignity. That won't deliver a sense of historical sort of righteousness and, and, and dignity. Um, it, it's, it's almost like having the right to do something does not mean that you're going to do it. Getting the right to return doesn't mean they're all going to suddenly show up in Jerusalem knocking on doors and asking for a house back. It's the dignity of having the right to do it. That seems like a very, very hard thing to evaluate for an academic. Uh, and it's something that this is the, maybe the more important point. It's something that I would guess you would find in a lot of the work people themselves might be in, totally unaware of that being the thing that they're seeking. This could happen in in a, in a fight with a spouse or any interpersonal relationship. You're just mad and you're doing stuff and you don't really know what you're after. Maybe until, like you said, years later, you get it. I don't know what your response to that is, but I, I feel like it's an important point. I think it is important individually and collectively in Palestinian mm -hmm. struggle. And I think it's something which... <clears throat> It's something which is evident first in the way in which Palestinian exponents do talk about the way in which they've been denied dignity. So even if they're not making the case that the violence will restore dignity, there's no sense that they feel a humiliated desperation. Mm -hmm. I think that's been true in Gaza over many years, but it's been true elsewhere in West Bank as well, in parts of Jerusalem. So in that sense, there's a, there's a sense of personal and group dignity which they feel has been denied. And that's tied also to the sense of historic destiny that they feel that the land is their land and it's been taken from them and it's been occupied and therefore they're subjugated. They feel that they're losing agency mm -hmm. and there's nothing they can do. And to those people like myself who would say that political violence is very rarely going to improve things, actually it's likely to make a lot of things worse for people in their actual experience. One response people sometimes offer is say, well, what do we do? Mm -hmm. when, when, when we have a largely peaceful intifada, mm -hmm. don't get anywhere. When we have a peace process, we feel that the Israelis are sympathizing with settlers who suggest they're not really in the business of being serious about the peace deal of the 1990s. So we have to do something. So there's a sense of almost desperation as a lashing out mechanism. Now, then there's other things involved in it, like you might be pursuing revenge. <clears throat> there are certainly some inherent rewards for some people who are involved in that struggle. Uh, and you might have a sense of exaggerated belief in victory. I mean, I think it seems to me there's virtually no chance of Hamas destroying the state of Israel, but people get into states of overconfidence about what they're able to do. But I think the pursuit of dignity is something crucial. The question there in these complicated and deeply long-term conflicts, as with Israel-Palestine, is, is there a way in which the dignity of enough people on enough sides can be simultaneously respected, assuaged, and built into a system hmm. that terrorism seems less appealing to to people, or at least feel is appealing to so few people that it becomes a more, more trivial phenomenon. And that's a huge challenge. That's a huge challenge. I think there are ways in which the, the recent years in Israel-Palestine have seen an Israeli government, which has explicitly said it doesn't want to explore two-state 
mm. deals of the kind that were mooted in the 1990s. Now, I understand for Israeli politicians in terms of getting elected, remaining elected. I also understand it's not a straightforward thing because there was mistrust of the Palestinian Authority. There's understandable deep mistrust of Hamas because of the violence which they've continually practiced against Israel. On the other hand, it does seem to me that one of the things about terrorism is that it, it seizes our attention so that we we see the symptom as the problem. Terrorism is really a bloodstained symptom of the things that are more important historically, tensions between rival nationalisms, tensions with, between or within religious communities. But it seems to me as far as possible, you've got to say, are there ways of assuaging the problem strategically, which will make the symptom less frequent and less awful? Now, the recent tragedy in Israel-Palestine seems to me to suggest that treating the Palestinian problem as one which you can basically contain tactically in Gaza and to some degree ignore in terms of doing a deal looks tragically to have been misguided. Mm. And that's not to blame the Israeli government for the violence that Hamas practiced. I blame Hamas for the violence that Hamas practiced. But it seems to me that the idea that you can say we can just contain this tactically and we don't have to pursue some strategic way of doing a deal in the game of some kind I think that now looks much more dubious than it did, ever did. I always thought that was dubious, but it seems very bloodstained in its dubiousness now. So what I would be looking for now would be to say, are there ways, if you start coldly, where you look at the various different actors, where the protection of Israel, the protection of the security of people in Israel is guaranteed, but where the rights of people, not just in Gaza, but I mean, the violence that's been practiced against people in the West Bank is also a really significant part of this problem at the moment. Are there ways in which they could be constructed some way which would look at long-term political, not solutions, but answers which produce greater dignity. I think if you did that, then the horrors of the last few months would be less likely to appear over the coming decades. Yeah. Yeah, you you get to the one of your maybe asymmetries of um, dealing with terrorism and the aspirations of terrorists, which are multi-layered, as you said, but often there's these long-term goals maybe even like biblically sort of arcs of history kind of goals, which, you know, you sort of just wait long enough and the terrorists are like, well, you, you think it's not working now, right? Like October 7th led to like this huge response and now Gaza is, is bulldozed basically. Um, but they're like, but just wait, like this is all part of this bigger master plan. Um, and the, and you get some sort of, it's hard to refute, certainly, right? <laughs> because they're telling you, you know, evaluate or like, don't grade us yet. We're, we're going to get there. It's just, this is all part of the bigger, the bigger operation and the bigger plan. Um, whereas the response by, you know, the, 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 in quotes, democratic nations who are, have these, you know, uh, taxes and governments and these whole systems or whatever and militaries and the response they're kind of working on much more shorter timescales of winning election cycles and and whatnot so I, I mean i don't know how you work that into your evaluations of this is this actually getting hamas closer to that huge aspiration the uh, which which i guess just simply stated is to dissolve, disintegrate the state of Israel and replace it with a Sharia law-based Islamic state on the on the historic nation or area of Palestine. One of the things I've tried to do in my work is look at long pasts and by implication long futures. <clears throat> I think the historical approach is an important one because often terrorism makes us focus on very much what's happening now, but yeah. without memory and without long-term perspective. And as you suggest, one of the ironies here is that terrorists tend to think very long term. 
Uh, this is true of Hamas and of other Palestinian organizations. It was certainly true of Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. um, I remember doing an interview with a, an IRA gun runner in New York, Irish-born, lived in New York and helped to bring arms to the IRA. And at the start of interviews with people, I tend to ask them, how did it begin for you? When did you get involved? And he said to me, oh, for me, it really began in the 12th century, yeah, thinking about yeah, yeah. colonialism. I, I thought this is going to be a long interview, but but I knew what he meant. He was thinking yeah. long term. And in that sense, it, it is very hard to it is very hard to know when you're going to answer the question. <clears throat> the democratic answer is, of course, one coloured by the fact that people are always thinking about short-term issues. If there's an election in November, how is that going to be affected? Uh, if you're trying to keep your job as a prime minister in the United Kingdom, how is this going to affect you? So there's a short-termism as against long-termism. That said, I suppose the historical record is one where, broadly speaking, non-state armed groups and their terrorist violence have tended to overwhelmingly not to secure their central primary goal or goals. And I think at the moment, it looks to me unlikely that the configuration of forces either in Israel-Palestine, in the wider region, in the Middle East, or globally as such, is to suggest that Israel is facing existential threat. You know, mm -hmm. clearly the people who lost their lives terribly in October, there's an existential threat for those victims and it was appalling. But as a state, it seems to me it's not likely to dissolve. And I think in some ways, one of the ironies of these conflicts is that the state, which contains political forces who historically probably have to do some of the movement in terms of seeding ground, don't feel confident enough to make the gestures that would make them more secure. And I think that's that's one of the problems that there is in Israel. I can quite understand why that is the case, particularly after the horrific attacks of October. On the other hand, it seems to me that there is no serious threat to Israel existing. Yeah, um, There is a threat to Israel in terms of life in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem or wherever, if these kinds of attack and conflict continue to be part of life for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. My view is that therefore, if you believe that Hamas are unlikely to destroy Israel, that does give you greater room for maneuver in terms of what you can think about in terms of global alliances. One key part of it, of course, though it's not as often discussed in the West as I think it should be, is the regional neighbours have a huge role to play here. And I think anything which happens benignly in Gaza from now on is going to need to have some buy-in from regional actors in ways that will be part of, of the picture. I think otherwise it's very difficult for Palestinians to feel that something's going to be fair. But I think also this is a regional set of relationships which, which are absolutely vital. It'll also be coloured more globally by the fact that <clears throat> the main powers in the triangle of USA, China, Russia are in a very adversarial near-cold mm. war kind of in, in engagement. There's going to be a lot of elections in 2024, including a major one in the United States of America. The contingencies there will have an effect on foreign policy because often US policy with regard to Israel is a version of domestic policy in terms of the politics within the US. And it seems to me that um, that will... But but will, will Hamas in the long term, I mean, Hamas might think in the long term that they're going to achieve victory. I mean, what, what's certain is in the short term, the conflagration has prompted Israel to do things which a lot of people are criticizing. There's yeah. a lot of undermining of Israel's standing globally, a reinforcement of that undermining. It's also true that there's been a huge degradation of life and loss of life tragedy for Palestinians. I mean, normally in these conflicts, Israel and Gaza, it ends up with the Palestinian death toll being much higher. And that yeah. was when the atrocity happened on October 7th. I just thought there's a sort of silence at the moment. But what's going to happen is a reaction which will end up with a much larger death toll of Palestinians. So I think in that sense, Hamas are not really benignly affecting Palestinian experience or life. But what we need is people to say, well, if not this, then what? And I think that's where the wider question needs to be the thing we look at rather than just looking at the terrorism.
Yeah. I want to go to the history now of, of that region. Um, there's a, a line in your book, which I'm sure you get uh, picked on sometimes for or pushed back um, about Israel and the founding of it. But I, I, want, to, I want to really get into this because I have a, I have a I think an important question here that I've been thinking a lot about. The line from your book, it's in the Hamas section, is really quick. It just says, though an unpopular point to make in some settings, the establishment of the state of Israel arguably embodies one of the most striking examples of terrorism actually managing to achieve major success. Um, I'll ask you to tell me what's behind that line, but uh, maybe I could I could prep it a little bit. Of, well, actually, first, just tell me for the listener who finds that line maybe very striking or anti-Semitic or what's popping up in their heads or how can someone write this kind of thing, what is behind that line of Israel, the state of Israel, being an example, perhaps, of terrorist success? It's certainly not an anti-Semitic line, and I'm constantly defending the rights of Israelis and Jews to defend themselves mm -hmm. in their arguments, but also in their state. It is a matter of historical record that one of the things which accelerated the British withdrawal from Palestine and the establishment in the 1940s of the State of Israel was non-state armed group violence, which fits the definition of terrorism in most definitions. And, and targeting Just civilians and right. targeting civilians and um, you know non-state actors targeting civilians often in brutal ways, and it was seen by the British at that time as emphatically being terroristic violence. It wasn't the only thing which had led to the cause of Israel uh, being, being successful. Clearly, after the Holocaust, there was an international desire that there should be a homeland, I think understandably. Um, post the Second World War, the UK was feeling that the empire was a bit of a stretch, and so there was a sort of impulsion towards that diminution of global role as well. It seems to me that as an historian looking at it honestly, looking at all of the sources, it's hard to deny that the terrorism practiced in pursuit of the state of Israel being established uh, was a trivial part of it. I think it was a significant part of it. I think mm -hmm. it did play a part. Um, now, of course, if you think that founding the state of Israel is something which is paramount and that therefore even awful violence of the kind practiced to pursue it was justified, then that's an argument which some people would undoubtedly make. Uh, and I think, as in the other cases where terrorism has achieve very major outcomes. You could look perhaps examples of Algerian terrorism against mm -hmm. the French in the late mm -hmm. 50s, early 60s. If you're an advocate of the cause in which the violence is pursued, you can say, well, that was just. Just as in more orthodox wars, terrible suffering happens, but people might say, well, it was necessary because even this awfulness was better than not doing the thing which we needed to do to achieve this precious goal. Now, the reason it's uncomfortable is obviously because people want to forget that. Mm. Terrorism in Israel-Palestine is something which predates 1960s Palestinian famous terrorism in terms of the, the, the emergence of hijackings and, and, and so forth. Now, where you date the beginning of these conflicts is a very contentious thing, because if you started at one place, it looks like they started it. If you started at another place, it looks like someone else started it. My sense is that going back and back and back to find a first strike is probably not the way to go, mm -hmm. because I think you're going to end up, at least in the book of Jeremiah, by which time you're <laughs> back into things which are so distant that it's really a very different world. So my sense is, is to be honest about the fact that there has been, in the Israel-Palestine case, there has been terrorism practice on all sides. Um, 
And it seems to me that to deny that is probably to deny one possibility of moving forward. Because I think if, if all that happens is, if you or I are in dispute and I just deny that I or those associated with me have ever done anything against your community, it's very hard to build the trust, which would mean that we get to a better place. Um, but I, but I, mean, it's, I wrote in my book, it's not a popular line. Uh, it's not always been a popular line to use in lectures at American universities. Mm -hmm. um, though I think the complexion of attitudes at US universities is shifting significantly. Yeah. And I think that's something which is going to be potentially a big part of the next 50 years of this, actually. Um, but, I, but, but partly what I've tried to do is to say, look, I'm not in any way being anti-Jewish by saying that Jewish terrorism is an effect. I'm being honest about the history of that region. And I think without that honesty, it's hard for us to, to, to move that far forward in dialogue. Yeah, I, I want to push more on the honesty of it because I think it's a, a hugely, hugely important point. This trilogy that I'm releasing, if people listen to it in my recommended order, which includes a little bit of my personal journey growing up in, in sort of a, um, a Zionist household, which we would have never called ourselves, but it's an American Jewish post-Holocaust uh, household that I grew up in, no talk of God, really atheistic stuff, but Israel was a third rail that you just sort of had to, I was fed a lot of that stuff. Um, this is no uh, condemnation of my parents directly, but it just happened to a lot of us. Um, and I just want, I want to pin here something you said there about American universities and all this stuff, because I think it's, an, it's a really important point. The world is in a, a philosophical shakeup at the moment. I think we're in a, a moment of reckoning with our history, reckoning with our past. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for why this might be happening now. I think you referenced Steven Pinker in the book at a few points. I think he, to, to dumb it down a little bit, he, in a lot of his work, points out the um, underreported progress of things like, you know, uh, things that we would just generally associate with flourishing, lower death rates and even violent death rates. We'll, we'll talk about the, the the real risks of dying in terrorism, which you also write about well. Um, you know, eradicating diseases, all the, all the pinker graph stuff's going the right direction. And I think it's possible that we have maybe reached some in some sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs threshold, a bit of a, of a security that maybe we've gained some stuff that if we really start poking at the, the myths and the narratives that we think we know, we always have sort of known, but we never really looked at too closely about how we got here because we're getting somewhere. There's a feeling that maybe we're getting somewhere technologically or whatever it is, that maybe we could start poking at some of these things because maybe we could do this without risking, you know, crumbling the entire civilization back to the Stone Age. Now, I think there's wrong ways to do that. I think what gets castigated as sort of woke madness sometimes is maybe some hysterical ways to do this. But underneath it, I think there's a real um, truth and uh, intelligent sort of resistance to like, I know these narratives are bullshit and I want the true story. Things like the 1619 Project in America leave alone sort of its historical issues and whatever. I think the impulse behind it is important. Um, and it's why things like your book and your work are incredibly important. So now zooming really into that and a really, really contentious one, we're going to talk about Jewish terrorism. Um, so again, I don't know how familiar people are with this stuff. I, I never learned about things like the Irgun or the Stern Gang or whatever growing up. My, my question is this one about this habit of wanting to um, kind of take people at their word of terrorist groups. They say these things, they're righteously sort of passionate about them. The Stern Gang was writing, you know, poetry from the Bible that was sort of fairly genocidal in nature and really kind of aggressive. 
And for example, the Irgun is this terrorist group that pulled off the King David Hotel bombing and several, several others. Their logo, if people look it up, you know, is a is a is a hand holding a gun, a rifle, in front of a a, a, a shape which people might not recognize. That shape is called Eretz Israel, which is what they believed is called Greater Israel, which is not just what you see on a map now of the current sort of little slice near the Mediterranean. It goes from the Mediterranean Sea, the entire uh, uh, Sinai Peninsula, all the way to the Euphrates River, like basically all of Jordan. This is biblically an idea of what's called revisionist Zionism of, of Eretz Yisrael and all of their intended goals. If I was talking to you then, if we were having this conversation in the year 1935, you know, we would say, well, their goal, the Irgun, is to, to establish a Jewish state for that entire region. And they have not achieved that, right? So you would say, well, they failed at that. But the, the leader, well, one of the leaders of the Irgun, Menachem Begin, literally becomes prime minister of Israel later. He's wanted as a terrorist under the British mandate, uh, wanted for murder. He's, he's a well-known terrorist, becomes prime minister. And then when he's prime minister, this is several years later, of course, he's kind of reveling in the success of what he calls the Hebrew rebels. And you get this feeling that he's like, well, we did it, we achieved it. And so the disconnect between that map of what they say they're going for and then what they get is, is so my question is really is like, I'm curious about the behavior of groups kind of once they start achieving some success, right? Like you have the Ayatollah in Iran saying, we're going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth and do this. And then he achieves power. He hasn't done that. Not that he's a good actor, not that he's not uh, trying in his little ways. But is there, do we take terrorists at their word a little too much? And is Jewish terrorism in the state of Israel actually an example of, you say, success, but also maybe a caution of like, you know, there, there's, there's something else to consider here. If you follow that, I think I think there is. I mean, my answer to that would be that quite often you find that terrorist organisations that achieve <clears throat> substantial but not complete success reframe mm -hmm. what they were looking for in terms of what they got. So, if you're looking for a particular amount of territory and you get a significant chunk of it and you establish a state, you present it as victory rather than saying, "Well, actually, there's other parts of the map that we'd also like to have got, but we didn't." get because you want to you want to consolidate you want to celebrate you want to make sure that what you've done looks like it was justified so for all of those reasons there's a kind of self-justifying revisionism if you like to the way in which you characterize things my approach as a historian and as a scholar and as a citizen i think is to be endlessly skeptical um i think we're a, we're a self-deluding species and i think we always have to be skeptical about what people claim particularly in regard to things which have been painful mm -hmm. in the case that you're describing so well there of the jewish terrorism which helped to produce the state of israel it's interesting to reflect on whether those people were they now to look at the state of israel and the condition and the experience and the situation it's in feel that that which has been achieved mm -hmm. justifies to the extent that some of their pronouncements seemed to claim uh, the, the violence which which is practiced. I mean, one of the things which has undoubtedly happened is that um, people look at the success of different armed groups and it seems to justify their own sense that they can justify violence in their own cause in the future. So people say, well, you know, Israel was founded on the basis of violence, so maybe it's necessary for us to do this. There's a kind of mutual escalation which mm -hmm. goes on. 
one thing which we do know terrorism always does is polarize. And a polarized Middle East means that that kind of incredibly complicated mosaic of people and cultures becomes bifurcated where people can bifurcate and it becomes therefore something which is 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 brutally non-dialogic and 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 doesn't have any kind of friendship. My interpretation of what happened in relation to Israel was that however much you can explain the motivations of those who wanted to establish the state and the understandable desire that there should be a Jewish state, which I fully respect in the awful context after the Holocaust, it does seem to me that often what you're looking at is the ineffectiveness of non-compromise. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and once the state of Israel is founded, it's founded in bloodshed, and then there are conflicts after it. And then in the 1960s, the next stage of major change is, is the occupation after the war of the 1960s. And clearly, that's in one sense a huge success for the Israeli state because they gain land. On the other hand, a profoundly ambiguous legacy to yourself to have the occupation of those territories because the, the, you get the sort of things which you've been seeing in recent, in recent times. So my sense is, should we listen to what terrorists say in self-evaluation? I think we should be skeptical of all political figures in terms of their self-evaluations. Should we look at it in terms of being honest about what they have achieved? I think where they've achieved things, we should recognize and be cold in analysis of that, but also skeptical. So I would say, well, you know, if you really want the flourishing of Jewish people in Israel to be the case, then what does the next 50 years actually look like? You know, even if you've got a two-state solution, what happens in the state of Israel part of it in terms of the minority, which feels to be second class, which is increasing the angered about that? Are you going to end up with Israel itself becoming like Northern Ireland was in the 1950s, 1960s, where you have a disadvantaged minority that feels that there's another wage? So it seems to me that quite often the violence has certain attractiveness in terms of exaggerated senses of what it might achieve for you. But generally speaking, I think in terrorism and in counter-terrorism, it's the ineffectiveness of non-compromise, which often comes out of these conflicts. And um, I I could never get elected, Jay, as a politician. Mm -hmm. I could never get elected. If someone who says, well, let's look at the next 50 years, it's never going to get the job. On the other hand, it does seem to me that if you're thinking about the actual flourishing of people in the Middle East, what you don't need is the exaggeration of what violence on any side is likely to produce. Yeah. Well, my next question is we're going to go into that area, not about you getting elected, but kind of, <laughs> because yeah. uh, don't worry, I won't, I won't make you run. Um, but y- you have this great emphasis in your talks and in your, in your writing um, about what history turns on. And you you make this point often that history doesn't really turn on terrorism itself. It turns on the response to terrorism. You say, you know, it's the response to non-state terrorism rather than terrorism that changes history. I I mean, it's so, uh, my sort of intellectual awakening and really getting interested in these things was was 9-11 when uh, I was in in, a sophomore. And I think everyone got the sense, I mean, the day, of course, was horrible, but everyone got the sense the real test is now, is what you do in response, right? And not to to, to grade my, uh, <laughs> my politicians, but I think a failing grade across the board over the next 20 years is obvious what happened there with humongous civilizational history consequences. Um, but because I, because I want to, I want to, I want to, get to this point that you kind of just made about this this balance that maybe politicians have to do of like how do you appease the masses george w bush has a bullhorn and he's in the rubble and he's screaming you know we i hear you and they're all going to hear you and you know we're going to go kick some butt or whatever it is but what are you what are you hoping is actually happening 
behind closed doors with maybe more sober minds, if you were not running <laughs> for office, but advising, which I, I don't know if you do some of that work. I, I hope you do. I hope there's sober minds in very unsober times of, of countries. You know, the, the George W. Bush's approval rating was 92% on September 12th, 2001. This is the country that's very dangerous to deal with. Um, what do you hope is said in those things or on October 8th in the Knesset? It's a it's a really powerfully difficult question, Jake, yeah. because clearly as in terrorism, there's more going on than just the rhetoric of the goals that you claim to be fighting for. So in politics, there's more going on than just counter-terrorism when you're talking about countering terrorism. If you respond in a certain way to terrorism, it can be great for the ratings and great for re-election. If you're at war, a war president is often going to be someone who benefits from the support of the nation being pulled together. So there's a kind of public requirement of certain kinds of narrative that people seem to feel. And that's a common thing. That's been the case in Israel, based in the United Kingdom, case in many countries. That said, when you look at the long history of responding to terrorism, not only is it true that our responses change the world far more than the awful violence of terrorists, it's also true that there are some things that repeatedly turn out to be the case. So, for example, saying you're going to get rid of terrorism has absolutely no historical basis at all. Yeah. Yeah. So if you say we're going to get rid of this evil, we're going to stamp out all global groups of terrorists, it's just not going to happen. So that's not a war on terrorism as it was branded. A a war on (laughs) terror, which you think you can win. Okay, it's not going to happen. Repeatedly, people exaggerate what can be done through military means. Mm -hmm. And then you find, particularly, I think, in Iraq, Mm -hmm. an exaggeration of that which can be done through the superb military of the United States of America, which is is then tasked with something it just can't do. Uh, Repeatedly, it's evident for liberal democracies that when you transgress the restraints within your law of how you treat people, it blows back at you. you know, and I think you know, long after no one can name anyone who died in 9-11, students at universities will be writing essays about Abu Ghraib and about Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. Okay, So there's a self-undermining. <clears throat> now, privately, these are things that politicians not only need to hear, but need. my argument whenever I'm involved in those conversations is to say, um, if you're thinking about your long-term reputation, this is the stuff that's going to go well for you. you know, don't exaggerate what you can do through the military. Don't ignore the laws that distinguish the liberal democracies. Don't make incredible statements. No, they hate us for our freedoms. Actually, that wasn't really the... Um, they hate us for our foreign policy would have been a much nearer the mark mm. analysis mm. of what the root causes were. Um, don't be short-term, think long-term. Now, is that going to work? What it might do sometimes, I think, Jay, is it might introduce a bit of caution about some of the more egregious responses that that can emerge. The difficulty is that what often happens is each state learns by making the mistakes again. Um, So you find the UK in Ireland in the 1920s and Northern Ireland in the 1970s, some of the things that went wrong were the same things, and it was the same state. United States of America after 9-11, I remember giving a lecture in in 2003 as the invasion of Iraq was happening, it was about terrorism. And I remember someone saying to me at, at university, this is just different from anything before in the past. So whatever happened in the past doesn't matter because we're going to, not quite, we're going to sort it out, but this is different. Okay. But it seems to me, of course, each case is unique, but there are family resemblances. You know, every human being is unique, but that doesn't mean you ignore the family resemblances when you're ill. There are things which you think medical science can help with. And I think here, restrained, proportionate, intelligence-based, legally appropriate methods are very effective ways of dealing with terrorism. And I think that the sadness is that in the moment of, the moment of crisis, people often lose sight of that. What you need, therefore, is for all of us, as people who vote for politicians, as people who 
if you work in journalism, in the media, in civil society, whatever it is you do, say, what are the, what are the actual long-term benefits of what's happening now? I think there's enough evidence to suggest that over-militarizing very well, and it's going to go badly for people. And I think including the people whom it's supposed to protect. I think you saw elements of that in the war on terror. And I have to say, I think you've seen elements of that repeatedly in the Middle East. Yeah, I think it's that point about, it's going around a little bit now of that this, um, you know, Hamas has won because they have revealed the hypocrisy of the West, right? They, they've they've revealed or, or, or permanently punctured the legitimacy of the West because it's it's being revealed that they really don't believe in a rules-based global order or something. You said something there about sort of keeping your, don't ignore your laws, don't transgress your own sort of moral laws in there. Um, I think that that point is huge. I want to, I want to th throw another thing by you just because you're an expert on this and I've just been thinking about it so much. Um, the occupation of Lebanon, which this, I think this will be an interesting point because you have so many different groups and that would be labeled terrorist groups in the Middle East. Um, you know, Israel is in Lebanon and and doing what they're doing. And Hezbollah is sort of birthed out of this, of course, like all these movements would call themselves a resistance movement. Oh, also, I actually didn't know this, that Hamas actually was an acronym. I just want to point this out for the audience, because that's kind of interesting. I, I don't know if you can pronounce it, what it actually stands for. My pronunciation won't do yeah. it justice, but it's an acronym, acronym for resistance. And it, it, and it, it is that is how they cast it. I mean, yeah. they, they cast themselves as the resistors to the prior violence. You know, that, was the way, the way they I, see it. IRM, it's an Islamic yeah, resistance movement. Yeah, is Islamic resistance movement, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, so that terrorist groups always will say, we didn't start it, the conflict came to us, and right. we're reacting to resistance. Um, and I think that, that that's true, as you mentioned, of Hezbollah. It's, tr it's true of Hamas. Right. Um, it's true in a different way of the PLO as well. So I think that's one of those things where you say, they started it we're resisting and that goes back to your point about dignity as well that yeah we have to resist because there's a sort of existential threat to us as as a community yeah so, so yeah and on so on this point of hezbollah which yeah again grows up as in their mind a resistance movement and um you know they they have a a, a paramilitary organization that's as, as good as it's going to be whatever i don't know how to evaluate sort of how strong militaries are but they they fight very fiercely and whatever happens in their own mind and they tell stories about it israel leaves eventually right like words get so coded with i could say israel is expelled israel retreats israel leaves whatever it is atoms changed in the universe and we give it a name <laughs> so the 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 forces that were that we know to be israeli leave and that story gets told by hezbollah in many different ways and i think this is the important part like how the story gets told and and one of the primary stories is you know we fought off the great satan using our military might and this is how you do it like we're showing the world you fight you do you fight dirty you attack you do suicide bombings all these things and eventually they'll get tired of it and they'll leave you'll you'll show this and i think there's a lot of ways to tell the story but i think a much more to your last point um i would say predictive an honest and important version of that story, because I don't buy much of that story really, is that it, through their actions, they may have, let's, I'm trying to, again, be very careful with all these words. They would say, or I would tell them, what you really did was you revealed the moral weakness of your enemy. The massacres of Sabra and Shatia and things like this those are the reasons I think Israel like looks in the mirror, being like, "This is costing us too much." 
hopefully there's also just the moral element of like people are being massacred and we have a great responsibility in that and I and we should stop and I feel bad but from a sort of more realpolitik analysis they're like this is costing way too much our reputation is damaged we're losing our soul we have to rethink this um and I think you know that's why they left and if it, it's not the story Hezbollah would tell because it's not quite as courageous and fighting in the battlefield and all that stuff but Hamas I would say, is, is pulling off that same trick now. I mean, the kind of just for people following it daily, the kind of, you know, desecrating graves and, you know, executions. And now, uh, I think a fairly legitimate ICJ genocide plausibility case being presented all of these things against the state of Israel is like what Hamas pulled off was is not going to defeat them on the, in the military field. They wouldn't dream of that, but reveal the moral hypocrisy of your enemy um to hopefully in their minds go to greater ends but i fear the story doesn't get told that way inside terrorist camps they're like no we're great fighters and you know the mujahideen in afghanistan we fought the great soviet army and we won our little scrappy guys and israel tells the same story in the six-day war i mean everyone tells the story of david and goliath and we're always we're always david <laughs> but it's it's i think sometimes it's actually you're, you're showing the world that goliath is actually a, a jerk and you shouldn't support him <laughs> I, I think you're you're so right. I think what what's what's happened is that people take what are quite unusual cases of terrorist efficacy and say, "Oh, look what you can do." So Bin Laden would look at the way in which, as he saw it, Soviets had been driven out of Afghanistan. He thought that so you know he said, "We believe that America is weaker than Soviet Russia. We can do the same." Um, the the Beirut truck bombings and U.S. pulling out of Beirut is another example, because those are easily eye-catching and you remember them and you exaggerate them. And as you say, a heroic myth, we've stood up to Goliath and we're the heroes, is one people like to self-describe. But also other people look at it. Well, in that case, we could do it too. We could take on Russia, we could take on America, we could take on Israel. My sense in my framework for does terrorism work is that one of the things that frequently does happen is that terrorists that are not getting their central strategic goal do provoke their opponents into self-undermining. Mm. And what has happened in recent months is that the terrible atrocity of October 7th, which appalling things, has in some ways in popular imagination globally become somewhat eclipsed by the suffering of Palestinians, in, particularly in Gaza, to a lesser degree in the West Bank, but spectacularly in Gaza. And therefore, there has been a kind of long-term self-undermining in terms of international opinion for all of the complexities on the ground of who's actually being killed and what was actually intended, much of which remains opaque. The legacy of this in terms of popular opinion, for example, the United Kingdom or the United States, has increasingly been one which is very, very critical of Israel. Now, my argument is that effective counterterrorism tends to be ethical counterterrorism. In other words, I think part of the efficacy of states dealing with non-state atrocity is to maintain that distinction between what you do and what they do. In other words, if you're thinking that they're really the villains, uh, and they're the ones who will deliberately kill civilians on October the 7th, then what you have to say is, look, and we are so profoundly different that the long-term implications of that means genuine good guys in this. So post 9-11, for example, the debate on should we redefine what torture is so we can torture suspects and so on. Now, in the end, the US decides not to sustain the idea of waterboarding as what you do. But that's kind of forgotten because what people remember is that there was the rendition program and there was mistreatment of people. And America seemed to undermine itself. And in a way, the danger with that is 
you can risk validating some of the propaganda of your opponents. You make yourself seem like what they said you were in the first place. Then they can go, well, look. Now, I think within the terrorist camp, as you say, there's not necessarily much cold analysis of that, except that some terrorist leaders are very sharp-sighted. Mm. Um, and you know, there was a, um, there was an IRA leader in the 1920s who, talking about British overreaction to IRA violence here in Ireland, said there, as in the British, their campaign of terror was undermining itself. In other words, if you can provoke them into doing something which blows back at them, that's a kind of tactical result. Now, whether that gets any strategic benefit in the longer term is another question. But I think it's a huge, it's a huge and challenging issue for liberal democracies to maintain their liberal democracy while dealing with this illiberal democratic violence. It is not an easy one, particularly if you're trying to get or maintain power. And I accept that that's a difficult thing. Having said that, the long-term effects of this, you know, whether the French in Algeria, Israel repeatedly, United States in the global war on terror, United Kingdom in a number of imperial struggles, um, there are long legacies of this. You know, there are still people rightly raising things that Britain did in Kenya in the mid-century, last century. So this doesn't go away quickly. The long-termism of it is something which can self-erode. My hope with Israel would be that that section of Israeli society, which is significant, which wants Israel to be a different kind of state from the state that Netanyahu has wanted it to become in recent times, will gain traction with the configuration of forces in the wake of the crisis. We'll see. That's not in my control. It's not in anyone's individual control. But it does seem to me that what Israel needs to do is to rediscover the moral high ground if it's going to be effective in terms of counterterrorism. And that means thinking strategically. It means thinking long term. And ultimately, I think, Jay, that means trying to pursue the idea of a deal with the Palestinian Authority. I just think that is, yeah. is an unavoidable thing. It's, it's something which Netanyahu has rejected. But it seems that even the strong friends of Israel, the US and the UK, are coming out saying, actually, that looks to us what the future is going to involve. So I think a post-Netanyahu deal is probably one of the best outcomes that I could foresee, but it's very painful to get there. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm actually, just as, as a little side note, I'm, I'm optimistic, uh, not in the short term. I think it's going to be a very ugly decade with uh, we're not we're not close to the worst that it's going to get as a regional. But I do think, I just mark this clip, 10 years from now, I think the walls are going to come down in Israel and it's actually going to be a democratic dream that that it should have been. But we have a long way to get there. So I, I, when I was listening to you talk there, I mean, it's, it's not... I'm curious, the terrorists who are, are sharp with this, because it almost feels like the target of October 7th was the response, if they really knew what they were doing here. <laughs> was the response and the target of it was actually the US, which is maybe success being like, we're gonna show you how brutal Israel really is because we know them really well. We've been dealing with this for a long time. They talk a good game. I'm gonna actually read something from a bit um, to go back to sort of the founding of it. Cause I think this, I think this is uncomfortable, uncomfortable for people to hear, but Israel has, it's, it's, a, tr it's a tricky one. It's a really, really tricky one. And the terrorist, foundings which are assisted the founding of it um are important to talk about the through line all the way to today and it's no secret to the palestinians who've been living with it and dealing with it and in living memory um but the, you know they wanted to show we want to show you how brutal these guys can be and you're not going to want to support them there was almost a trust in america if you cut off american support from israel i'm very curious what happens that's obviously something that Bin Laden was interested. A lot of people have been interested in that. And I think Hamas would be interested in the way that would play out too. And in that regard, this seems to have been some sort of a success. Um, there's a lot of rumblings. I agree with them that that Joe Biden's probably the last Democratic 
president or candidate ever to have an unconditional support of Israel. I think that's probably true. Unfortunately, in the short term for Palestinians, you got Trump, who's way worse, or Biden, who has made it clear that he's not budging on anything. Um, but so to to this um, point, I want, I want to get to this thing about, um, I don't know if I can even do this successfully, but the Holocaust as a variable seems incredibly pivotal, pivotal in leading to that, what, what you call a, a success there of the Irgun and their mission. There was an absolute extermination attempt in Europe and that led to a, you know, um, global, not in the Arab world, but global just about everywhere else that everyone had power after the end of World War One and two, really, that there, there ought to be some Jewish state somewhere. And we're already well on our way in Palestine. So let's just see what happens and finish the job. Um, I hate to put it this way, but the response to even something as awful as the Holocaust also is seemingly what history can turn on in the future rather than just the Holocaust itself. And I, I just want to just, if you don't mind me me reading this quickly, I, I won't read the whole thing, but Menachem Begin, who we always, already mentioned, who was in the Irgun and, and part of the terrorist uh, lead, he visited the U.S. on sort of a, a promotional tour in 1948. And there was a letter, I don't know if you know this letter, the letter in the New York Times, a letter to the editor that um, was signed by Hannah Arendt and Albert Einstein and tons of Jewish intellectuals. And it was sort of warning this, the American people about who this person was. And I, I just want to put it also a point of like, people like Einstein and Arendt were interested in Zionism in the 1930s, early. Arendt used to go to conventions and whatnot. And very early on, we're talking 15, 18 years before the creation of the state, left and being like, no, no, this is being taken over by pretty bonkers religious zealots and people like Menachem Begin. And so I just want to read the first paragraph of it. This is in the New York Times, 1948. There's an article called The New Palestine Party, um, Visit of Menachem Begin and Aims of Political Movement Discussed. All right. So the, to the editor of the New York Times, among the most disturbing political phenomena of our time is the emergence in the newly created state of Israel of the Freedom Party. This is uh, I forget the Herut is the name of Begin's party, which has become Likud. So we have a direct line all the way to Netanyahu. Um, so the creation of, of the Freedom Party, a political party closely akin in its organization, methods, political philosophy, and social appeal to the Nazi and fascist parties. It was formed out of the membership of, uh, of the following of former Irgun, a terrorist right-wing chauvinist organization in Palestine. It goes on. I'll link to it for people who are interested in the whole thing. But um, I just want to I just want to put that out there for people who are hearing some of your criticisms of Israel or maybe minds or not even criticisms, just sort of historical analysis and this worry of the state that we're in. You're in good company with Albert Einstein there. And people have been worrying about this for a very, very long time. Um, I think, you know, this letter and many other worries within the Jewish community itself fell on deaf ears largely because the Holocaust was drowning out anybody being able to hear them. So I don't know if you want to want to be able to respond to to some of that, but it's it's just really uncomfortable and to bring to where, you know, I don't know how we get out of this mess because it does seem like this has been a long time brewing and now 
the year 2024, there's a little lid being lifted off of that where maybe we could start to say some of these things honestly and find our way through. I think the difficulty partly was the the scale of the atrocity of the Holocaust was so deafeningly loud, if you like, yeah. that, it, that it understandably meant that it conditioned an awful lot of response. I think it's also true that tragically and appallingly, anti-Jewishness remains an incredibly pervasive and pernicious phenomenon. And therefore, as well as the regional insecurity that Israel felt as a state surrounded by enemies and so forth, there was also the sense that you had still within living memory this terrible atrocity of the genocide. And also you had the sense that wherever you went, people were against you. So all of that was a very volatile mixture among which I think conditioned responses. My sense would be that the best way of honouring people who suffered in the atrocity of the Holocaust would be to produce a state of Israel, which is as secure for its people as possible, which is able to be stable and not constantly threatened as possible, and which has a, a way of honouring those things which quite rightly people who want a liberal democracy in Israel want to see flourish. Now, that's always going to be contested because people say, well, this is a state of emergency. This is a crisis. It's all right for you to say that, Professor. You live in the UK. Uh, you're not, you've not got neighbours like Iran who are threatening us, and you've not got people attacking, as, as happened on the 7th of October. Now, all of that is true, but it does seem to me that what really will be important is over the next 50 years, what kind of Israel is going to be emerging? Because you can't always count on <clears throat> your friends supporting you. So, you know, we've mentioned earlier on, there is a generational shift in, mm -hmm. in US life now with regard to Israel. Um, there's a politically axiomatic wrapping yourself in the Israeli flag, but on American campuses, that's not the way that the responses have necessarily been from, from, from students who will be the next generation of, of thought leaders and professionals. And, and it seems to me that the best way of honouring the memory of the Holocaust is to make sure that Israel is is secure. I think the best way of making sure that Israel is secure is ultimately, with regard to terrorism, of course, protecting yourself tactically from the awfulness of it. But long term, is thinking about some way of assuaging the problems from which the terrorism, awful though it is, has emerged. That's not a defence of or a justification for Palestinian terrorism, but it's something which says that the best way of dealing with this long term is to think about the flourishing of people in Israel and in the region. And I think that is something which... Like you, I think long-term, one emergent aspect from this current crisis might be that people think, whatever we do, we can't let this continue to be the way mm -hmm. things are. There has to be some alternative. But that again, I mean, one of the things in my book is these things are contingent, not inevitable. You know, if, for example, President Trump is elected in the next election, um, you know, if he follows the pattern of engagement with Israel that he did in his first term, there's going to be a certain kind of approach, which is 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 one that, Palestinian actors are going to find very hard to deal with. Um, and I think that, therefore, the long-term soundings of it have to be that we, we try and find ways of relationships being built, which mean that within the region as well as globally, strategic rather than just tactical approaches to terrorism or what are adopted. Be before we end this, we have to talk about religion because we haven't really brought it up. Um, and you know, from some of the people that I work with and you know, they take it very, very seriously and they, they'll say things like, you know, th this is all well and good what you're saying, but you know, it doesn't matter when someone believes they're getting it at 72 virgins and the afterlife, these aren't earthly sort of, um, conditions or, or considerations. And, uh, we, we have to deal with them in, in very different ways or, you know, how do you deal with the, religious layer 
where do you put it in the causal chain? And I know that's a dumb way to put it because for different people, it could be in different places, but where do you put it in the causal chain of events that lead to terror? And then I know, and then I know you've also spoken about, and I like it also, we underestimate or, or maybe underconsider where it fits into the causal chain of deterring terror, sort of a counterfactual world of, well, if you didn't have the religion there, it might even look worse. <laughs> and that's, that's something that people tend not to, to consider. So I don't know if you if you spend much time looking at the you know the holy doctrines of Jews and and Muslims and different sects of Islam and and Judaism as well and um, try to see you know is that just shaping the way the violence looks in particular or is it you know how how do you deal with the religion variable? So that's a, that's a great and and huge question, Jay. Yeah. So I, mean, I think <clears throat> one answer is that clearly for some actors, religion is a key part of the not just the narrative but the the teleology so for some settlers some jewish settlers the religious aspect of it is a non-trivial thing and it's part of what they interpret the whole to be about for hamas clearly what they want is not just to destroy israel but they want an islamic palestinian state so the religious aspect is crucial so there is an element of religion which you can't just dismiss and treat as a superficial thing because it sometimes makes an exacerbatory difference that said, the second point would be that really what you have in Israel-Palestine is religiously fueled rival nationalisms. Mm. My interpretation is, is a nationalist movement which has a religious fuel to it. The Israeli state is basically a self-determination venture, but it obviously has a religious as well as a national quality to it. So it's not the religion's trivial, but it is the case that even if somebody is a completely atheistic Palestinian advocate or Nationalism remains vibrantly significant. And I think the best way of dealing with this is actually to see this as the way in which we try and deal with self-denomination problems of nationalist communities. That is difficult enough, leaving aside the religion. But I don't think the religion makes it impossible because quite often what happens is people see the eye-catching rhetoric of religion partly because it looks very exotic to many non-religious people in Western analytical settings. And they think, well, in this case, there are a bunch of crazies. You can't deal with them. Often there are things which are very recognizable, the things we've been discussing you now about you know, power, structures of authority, dignity, representation, well-being, all the things that matter to people in the US, in Spain, in the UK, in Ireland. So those things are recognizable. So I think it's nationalism fueled by religion. The other thing is that while people tend to point to the eye-catching aspects of religion, which fuels violence, I think it would be more true to say that the overall effect of religious belief teaching leadership instinct and so forth is to is an ironic one it's peaceful it, it tends to reduce violence rather than ex exacerbate it i think probably encountering terrorism we've not built as much as we should on the peaceful resources that major religions offer us um, actually in all of the major monotheistic religions there's a strong tendency towards mercy compassion understanding neighborliness those sorts of things and that can be a big resource and i think quite often what you need is the religious faith leaders to be a strong voice amongst other voices in favor of those things which tend towards if if, if not harmony at least comedy or respect or some kind of non-violent engagement and there is a there is there is a big resource there now western leaders tend not to play that card and i understand why that is but i think there's probably a mistake i think there are ways in which religion in this context could be one of those things where faith leaders can can, can offer leadership what happens often is that you'll get in recent decades there'll be a terrorist atrocity which is done by people in the name of islam and it's front page of the newspapers and it's headline news then a few days later 
the imams of that particular country will come together and say, this is not something that we think is in the name of Islam, but it's kind of page 24 in the newspaper and no one really notices it. So we play up the violent bits of religion and play down some of the resources. Is it going to solve it? No. Is it one of the resources we have? I think that it might be. And that's why, again, we need in the region, we need in the region people who are not looking to violence to be the answer, to be part of, if not a solution, at least some sort of progress. I think long-term that's possible, Jay. Um, I also think if it's not going to happen, we're just facing cycles and cycles of this yeah. kind of ghastliness. And that will just cause for, for Jews, for Palestinians, for actually for blowback in the West, because mm -hmm. there will be response to the West's attitude to Palestine, I predict, in the future. Um, for all of us, what we need is human flourishing, and that means some kind of way out of this, which is strategic, not just tactical. Yeah, can you just before I, I want to keep you all day, but, but before you go with the, I'm curious the balance of non-violent resistance and violent resistance. I don't know if you study in the Palestinian case all of the efforts. Your, your book is full of quotes of people being like, "This was our last resort. We've tried everything else, and now we're doing terrorism." I think that's something uncomfortable for people to hear. Um, they tend to to maybe not remember or know, or I don't know how publicized the nonviolent resistance in, in Palestine is. There was, uh, you know, the, there's plenty of it and it seems to get them nowhere. And then they go, well, let's just try this eventually. Um, and then as an analogy, I just wanted to, I don't know if you have more of a philosophical place you're at with thinking about that balance between movements and their violent and nonviolent kind of um, seesaw or scale that they're doing. I did an episode for people who are discovering this late and, and because I'm talking about this stuff now, I think my entire catalog is pretty interesting, but there's some stuff that relates to it that would be surprising. I did an episode called The Lessons of Black Panther that was about that movie. It was with Coleman Hughes and uh, it, was, it was a fun episode, but I pulled out some quotes at the beginning that people don't quite remember where you have Martin Luther King on one side and Malcolm X on the other. And Malcolm X is, I have a quote in there, celebrating the plane crash. He didn't cause it, not terrorism, but celebrating the plane crash that killed 162 white people from Alabama and celebrating it and saying, praying for more in front of, and he's got a little smirk on his face. He's maybe being provocative to the cameras and this kind of stuff, but this is terrorist rhetoric 101, right? You're praying for the death of innocent people and in planes to crash. Um, but the counterfactual is always that big question of like, okay, well, it seems the, you know, the, the, the black movement in the 60s had at least some success legally. And we we tend to to want to ask, would it have happened without Black Panther parties and Malcolm X? Martin Luther King is this lovely, peaceful, I have a dream speech thing. And we tend to maybe gravitate towards like, oh, I wish, I wish it was all like that. Um, where Where is your thinking on it of the like, this balance of... So, yeah. so I, I think the key thing for people who don't want terrorism to happen, where there is a major problem from which terrorism emerges, is to say, well, what is the viable, non-violent way mm. of people making progress? And I think that could be by rewarding civil resistance more frequently and speedily than is done. It could be through being more honest about the imbalances and the injustices which currently obtain. Because I think if you say to people, you can march and you can write letters and you can talk to your politicians, but we're going to ignore it completely. Then the arguments of those who want to be more militant seem to have a greater right. attractive, attractiveness. It doesn't justify them, but it gives a greater attractiveness. So my sense is that you need to make politics of a non-violent kind of work for people and visible, and make the costs of the violence visible and say that this, this is what happens when violence is practiced. It tends not to get its strategic goals. It does polarize. It often means that the community in whose name it's practiced really suffers. But here's what you can do. We can do this. We can address this. We can make progress. We need to do that. The other thing which is really interesting, I think, 
your question points to this quite often over a long career of activism people go back and forward between things so they start as non-violent actors they become frustrated they become involved in violence quite often at the end of their career they're involved in a move towards something which is a peace deal so you end up yeah. with something where it goes back and forward my sense is you want to get straight to the end game rather than having the conflict in, in the middle of it I sometimes say in the North Island context, the key thing is to get straight to the Good Friday Agreement and miss out the troubles if you can do it. Quite often, the shape of what's available at the end is kind of there at the beginning. So I think in what we've been talking about, Jay, in terms of Israel and Palestine, the broad map of what a two or even three state solution might look like, we could sketch it in a way that everyone would feel comfortable and actually rather familiar with. Okay, Getting there is very difficult, but I think that would it wouldn't remove all terrorism by any means, but it would it would assuage anger in such a way that the terrorism would become much more minimal and much less of a long-term threat. Um, getting there is a difficulty. So what do we need to do? We need to say to people, here are the structures. That often has to be back-channel at the first. It has to be people building relationships privately. It has to be lobbying in ways which, you know, if strategy is about creating relationships which give you power, um, people on all sides need to have the friendship groups, which mean that they can say, well, if we do this peacefully, what will we get for it? If we can go back to our people and say, we've got this, we can keep, keep the more angry crowd mm-hmm. in, in control very difficult in the middle of the firestorm we're in now jay but long term i see that as being the best answer and i think there you know to use your african-american analogy you end up seeming that martin luther king is not only the one that people feel more comfortable with but is more likely to produce change in america now that's a whole other episode we could have a conversation mm-hmm. on which is african-american experience in the united states of america um which has been uh an, an an appalling lack of progress on many, many issues. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense is what you need to say is there is a politically non-violent way in which human dignity and flourishing can be pursued, not giving you everything you want, but giving you more which will be valuable to you, successful and recognisable taking up the gun or the bomb. Mm. Well, that was great. I Personally, with Israel-Palestine, I, I actually think um, the two and maybe three state solution ship has sailed and and maybe for the better, but I think it means that we've chosen to go through the hard way (laughs) to get to the one state. Um, And it's just going to be a just, it's, I mean, I'm not even upset when Netanyahu just is saying what he's always said of like, I don't want a Palestinian state. Okay, let's, let's have the question and the settlements are not stopping in the West Bank and everywhere else. And so, um, and and in some ways, I think that's, that's, maybe the solution that was was there from the from the beginning as well to take shape but now we have to go through got to go through the hard way to get there but i do think we'll get there of a one state it's just what the shape will be is it an ethno state for jews an apartheid state is it an islamic state as hamas would want or hopefully what we were all root for the actual democratic you know what south africa has started their baby steps towards of of real truth and reconciliation and hopefully a flourishing democratic pluralistic state to, to get there but it's going to be a bumpy bumpy ride <laughs> and then we've chosen i, I we've think chosen i think way. it will but i yeah. think you're you're initiating conversations where people are trying to be in all directions yeah the necessary part of that because i think that that'll influence the complexion of what politicians think will get them re-elected that will influence the way in which we approach education that'll influence the way in which we approach organization um what i don't think we can do is just survive on simple black and white yeah comforting options and i think that really hasn't helped us um and, and i think that's the case in israel palestine i also think that's the case in many other issues and um things are normally more messy and jagged when you look at our species closely yeah well i'm happy you're looking at the the jagged parts in history um it's uncomfortable 
to read for a lot of people, but I think that's th those are the kind of conversations that we're going to need to have. Um, rejecting the simple black and white narratives, rejecting the good versus evil stuff. Um, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Whatever, like the, there, there's truth in it, and we just have to swallow it, and we have to understand it, um, and then hopefully have way, way less of it. Which is your point. Your that's your, that's your, what I that's what I would like to see. You know, more more human flourishing, less human suffering, and uh, you know, in some small way, I think that's what our conversations um, can, can can point towards. Whether we have success, I don't know, Jay, but keep on trying. Yeah, amazing. And I think what people really want is acknowledgement. Just as my final piece is like acknowledgement of truth, acknowledgement of their pain, acknowledgement of suffering. Part of what the mess in Israel and Palestine is the acknowledgement of the things you're writing about. That Menachem Begin was is the prime minister. You have, I mean, there, there's acknowledgement on both sides of everyone's pain until you really acknowledge it. And that's the scary part: acknowledging someone's pain who's really, really mad at you. They might punch you in the face. <laughs> the acknowledgement might not be good enough, but figuring out a way to acknowledge these things and come to terms. I'm challenging myself. This is a preview at the end of this trilogy. I'm trying to write, if I was a speechwriter for you know the Israeli prime minister, kind of what I test you to do on October 8th, what would I really say? What, what there's, there's what I wish they could say, and then what, what would be realistic to say. Um, but I think it's, we're gonna, we're gonna need a lot of courage to get through. And we didn't get to talk about, I won't keep you any longer. We didn't get to talk about, because I think people know this, the statistical unlikeliness of actually being in a terrorist attack. Um, but we're, get, we're there's going to be some, I just have to, we just have to say that, right? Like you've said, it's going to be blowback in the West. I'm in Europe now in America, there's going to be some, and we're going to need the courage to not make monumentally stupid mistakes in the face of it, even though it will be very painful. And that isn't to say do nothing. I know that's not what you're advocating. Um, but it's keep your head on straight, be smart. And what you said there is keep your moral values as tightly as you can, even in the face of a lot of pain and, and, and anger. I feel like Israel has failed. They're not the first state that's failed. They're not the first people that's failed in that. Um, I hope it stops soon and we could start finding our way towards acknowledgement they're they're delaying my optimistic view i'll put it that way <laughs> and, and hamas is of course as well this is not just them but we'll get there we'll all get there so i think that conversation and professor english's work is insanely important and we need way more people taking the questions he's been brave enough to take on seriously and you probably heard a lot of really hard problems in that topic particularly about how to respond to what we have come to call terroristic violence. And I mentioned that I'm going to challenge myself at the end of this series to actually write a speech for what a prime minister should say or even practically could say on a day like October 8th of 2023. Because it's pretty easy to criticize and throw spitballs from the back of the class as I've probably engaged in a bit on this series already, but what's really hard is actually trying to figure out what to do and what to say. I think there were plenty of hints in that conversation. So that effort of mine will come at the end of the next conversation, which is a conversation I had with Miko Pellet, who is the son of a famous Zionist general who is now an activist and advocate for the Palestinian cause. So you'll get to hear more about his transformation in the next episode. Thank you.